Into the Void, a deep dive music podcast into the best classic and current heavy music. You win some, lose some, and do the same And let's meet your hosts, veteran music journalist formerly of Metal Edge Magazine, Dave Manick. Host of the online music show, Listen to the Lord on Rapture Radio, Lord Gates. The music industry insider with the encyclopedic knowledge of all that is heavy, Wild Bill. And our gear guru, veteran musician, J-Man. Hey, that's right. We are back again here on the Into the Void Music Podcast. I'm happy to have all the gents here as always. I'm Dave Manick. We got Wild Bill, J-Man, Lord Gates. And we're going to be here talking about a really special anniversary and it's not one of those random anniversaries that people want to celebrate the 19th or the 23rd. Now this is a 40th anniversary that we're going to get to in just a second. 40th anniversary of one of the most classic hard rock, heavy metal, punk, whatever you want to call it, albums of all time. But before we do that, we like to start the show sometimes with our one cool thing, something that we've uh, seen or done over the past week. So I'm going to start with you, Jay, man. What was your one cool thing you heard or read about this week? If you're familiar with our first podcast, we talked about online music, and it was right about the time when Clutch did their initial uh, Live from Doom Saloon, Volume 1. They've announced over the weekend that they're doing uh, a Volume 2. It's going to happen on August 7th. And what they're doing is offering fans a chance to pick the playlist. So they put the rules up, uh, basically like 14 songs. You create a Spotify playlist. You submit it to uh, Clutch official site. And one winner will end up being the person uh, that the set list you know, is designed, designed by. And then they, they're going to get a special package uh, delivered to them that's going to have a whole bunch of cool uh, swag and merchandise to commemorate their winning of that uh, contest. So that's, that's looking awesome. forward cool. to that. Yeah, and uh, Gates was saying that he knows he's seen some extra stuff uh, from Volume 1, Doom Saloon. What was it you saw, Greg? Some cool stuff about the, the color oh, vinyl? Oh, um, it's actually volume two. What they're doing is the okay. this, this round they're going to record and they're going to put out a double vinyl set and then they're doing limited edition T-shirts, kind of like the first round. And then I think they're doing posters and something else. Sweet. Um, and there's like a ton of merch on their, on their website now. I just got one of those 32-ounce uh, stainless steel travel mugs with the elephant riders the calgary logo on it i was been a big fan of that that yellow and black the yeah elephant yeah riders. Mm-hmm. but yeah they're doing a double vinyl for it, it looks really good sweet awesome um but wild bill what was the cool thing that you checked out this week so the one cool thing um my buddy justin um <laughs> put a video up and he went to a local dog shelter. I think he meant went to more than one. Videotaped himself with the dogs, the different dogs, helped out at the shelter, dogs, cats. Videotaped himself with these, put them on his social media. People saw one of his friends from the Marine Corps saw one of the pit bulls, had set it up so he was able to get the pit bull shipped to him. Basically, somebody brought it to him. He adopted them, and he's been putting update videos um, from his friend that has the dog on his social media and um, it's just really positive. It was something really good. It was really positive in these negative times where you go on social media and it's all fucking riots and just political shit and just a bunch of fucking garbage that, you know, the same regurgitated shit that we don't need to negative shit that we don't need to see. So it was something positive. So what I challenge people to do is go out there, go to your local shelters, 
shelter or whatever, one, two, five, whatever you can do. Spend the day there, maybe help out, or maybe just take some videos of yourself with these dogs, interacting with these dogs. Put them on your social media. Use your social media as something positive to promote this, this um, you know, helping these dogs get adopted, these cats get adopted. It's something super cool, super positive. You'll make somebody's life better, day better, the dog's lives, the cat's lives better. And it's just really, it's just something really cool. But use the platforms that we have that there's so much neg filled with so much negativity right now. Mm. Use them and do something positive. Kind of like what people try and do with music right now. We're trying to do, we're trying to see live shows like we're trying to do. We're trying to talk about music. We're trying to like, you know, make the world a better place by listening to music, the art of music. Same thing. Do this with dogs. Go and help out. If you don't want to do that, go help out at your shelter for a couple hours. If everybody just did a little bit of that, we get all the dogs and cats adopted, the world would be a better place. So mm. that's my two cents. That's my cool thing for the day. And uh, yeah. Hey, Bill, do you remember when we went to the, um, the pre-party in New London for the New England Stoner and Doomfest? Do you remember that? We were live on the radio. Yeah. Remember that? Okay. So the guy yeah, that, that runs. Bar. Yeah, that bar. Craig McAllister who runs that bar, he does that. Did you talk to him at all? He does that veterans uh, therapeutic equestrian services mm -hmm. where they take horses that are on like on their last legs or, or they were, they've been, you know, they've been ridden hard or they're blind or there's something wrong with them. And they bring veterans in and they interact with these horses and they, they lead them and they take care of them. They feed them, they groom them. Another, and it's out of Connecticut. It's out of uh, new London. Just another awesome service because I wanted to bounce off that. Uh, it just made me think of it right away with the with the dogs, you know, the horses thing. And I and uh, Craig is a, a fantastic guy. Thirty three Golden Street. That's the name of the club. Thirty three yeah. Golden and Craig McAllister. Check it out. Yeah, and just to add um, to to what Bill said, my wife volunteers at two different dog shelters. Uh, one's a shelter, one's Pasco County Animal Services, and the other one's a rescue. It's a no-kill shelter, a no-kill rescue where this guy takes in dogs that won't, won't make it at any of their shelter, and he doesn't, never kills. They never put him down, no matter what. And, um, and, that, and that's a tough business to be in, man, because um, you're not getting, you know, you're not getting dogs that everybody wants. You're not getting purebred awesome dogs. You're getting mixed breeds. You're getting a lot of pity, pipples and pit mixes. And, and I just have to shout out to her because she's saved so many dogs that were on the kill list, like Pasco County Animal Services, 72 hours left, 48 hours left. She's gotten so many dogs adopted that were about to get put down. And we have three dogs, all three are rescues, and two would have been dead if, if we didn't adopt them. Um, and they're the best dogs. I mean, we have, they're, they're both amazing, awesome dogs. And so, yeah, I totally agree, man. Those dogs will bring a lot of love into your heart and, 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 you know, it'll make you a happier person and you'll be saving, saving a life. Um, so I can't, I can't back up what Bill says enough. Lord Gates' cool thing, I think is good. it's going to carry us right into what the show is all about today. So Lord Gates, what's the cool thing you want to tell us about? Well, November 8th is the 40th anniversary of uh, Motorhead's The Ace of Spades. And man, they went all out for this one. They, are, um, they have different bundles. If you go onto the Motorhead site, you can, you can get the record, you can get the CD, you can get T-shirts. But the one that I want, the $300 one, the big one, I usually don't buy a giant box set or anything. It's, um, it's the album. 
half speed mastered, created from the original master tapes. That's awesome. Two double live albums of previously unheard concerts from the Ace Up Your Sleeve tour. Um, there's this thing called a fish, a fistful of instruments. It's an EP of previously unreleased instrumental tracks from 1980. Uh, the Good, the Broke, and the Ugly, which is a double album of B-sides, outtakes, and rare tracks. So now you're already up to what? Five albums, six albums, uh, five albums in the EP. Then you get the Ace on your screens, which is a DVD compilation of their TV appearances from 1980 to 1981, which are, is just awesome. A live concert from 1981, and they did the uh, 5.1 audio mix of the original album. You also get the Ace of Spades story, which is a 40-page book, mm. um, which is cool. The Ace Up Your Sleeve tour program, that's, that's, a, that's a classic one right there. I didn't go to that tour, so it would be nice to have that. Motorhead Rock Commando comic. You get now. Now this is where it gets really cool. This is where the three hundred dollar price. You really think about getting it. You get a set of five poker dice that can be played on the game board, which it's inside the box lid. You get a deck of Motorhead playing cards. Mm. You get a bespoke Texas Hold'em poker mat that's all Motorhead. A set of Motorhead casino chips. You get two Motorhead shot glasses. And this is all encased in a bespoke wooden Wild West dynamite box. This thing is really cool looking. But wait, there's more. If you act now, you get a limited edition seven-inch reproduction of the Dutch Ace of Spades single with a previously unreleased instrumental version on side B. Please note this is only a gift with purchase and is only available while stock of the items last. You get all that for 300 bucks. Now, are you buying I, it? I am I am buying that one. That Definitely. is a this Definitely. thing looks so cool looking. It's especially the box just looks like a giant dynamite box, this wooden box. And I do I'm gonna use the shot glasses, definitely gonna use the cards, definitely gonna use the playing mat, the dice. I'll listen to all that vinyl. And the big thing, I think the big seller is the DVD with all that I know there's a lot of footage on YouTube from 1980, 1981. But I think to have the live concert, the Ace Up Your Sleeves tour, and all that really – like, they did all those um, all those English television shows, you know, with people sitting in, like, at cabaret seating. Like, oh. That's right, yeah. Oh, it's Motorhead. And there's the weird spinning thing over the top of them with all the crazy lights and smoke. Uh, dude, it's I, – I, I definitely want to get it. Nice. Well, there you go. I mean, that's what we're talking about um, on this episode of Into the Void is we're talking about – Ace of Spades and Lemmy, because you can't talk Ace of Spades without talking about the legend that is Lemmy. And what's cool is at the end of this show, at our feature interview, we're going to be talking once again to Ian, who was on our first episode. He's the, um, the, the veteran drum tech. But for the last three years of uh, Lemmy's touring life, Ian was Lemmy's personal tech. So as you can imagine, having that type of experience with Lemmy, he's got some really cool stories about spending that kind of time with him on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So he's got a perspective that very few people do. So that's coming up at the end of the show is our interview with Ian when he talks about spending those three years with Lemmy as his touring road tech. Um, but before we, so what I want to get into is talking about Ace of Spades and its impact, the band's impact and the album's impact on heavy music, because think about this is 1980. So this is 
sort of around the time as the new wave of British heavy metal movement. Um, but it's so much more because Motorhead was not just a, I mean, there's people that don't even necessarily think they're more of a metal band. They might be even more of a punk band and there's a lot of a mix there. So that's why they are, their influence is so widely ranging. So let me go to you first while Bill, when you think about the influence that Motorhead and this album in particular had on the course of heavy music for years to come, what would you say about its impact? It was huge. If you look back, the other Motorhead albums, you know, had a, a slight impact. I think it was something different, you know, like this Lemmy from Hawkwind. And, but I, th- I think for Ace of Spades, you know, he's got, he's got Filthy Animal Taylor on drums. And that guy for Ace of Spades, when you listen to that, like the drumming on that hadn't been really heard like that before. So you got like, like all these drummers, like you got Lars, Charlie Benante, Dave Lombardo, all these people as they're growing up get that and hear that the drumming sells like it's just such a solid album that i think it's it it's super important man it's like it's one of those albums that came out that was so influential across the board between the united states and europe and you know everywhere else that uh people people really stepped up their game they're like holy shit what is this guy doing with these bass drums Mm. like and then just look at Ace of Spades itself. Like the the song is probably the top within the top three rock metal songs of all time. I mean, mm. you play that song, people know right away that's that's Ace of Spades, and it's everywhere. It's and it is everywhere. Movies everybody knows and, it. Yeah, everybody loves it. I don't know Covers anybody it. that's like if you put Ace of Spades and like, oh, turn that off. <laughs> so get out of here. I think, I think it was super important and super super influential, especially drumming wise. So, Hey, Jay, I know you're a, you're, you like Hawkwind. So talk a little bit about Lemmy's time in Hawkwind, or at least what you know about Hawkwind and then talking about how he took his songwriting and, and his style and brought it from Hawkwind into starting Motorhead. Well, Hawkwind is uh, space rock. It's, uh, you know, it's coming out of psychedelia late sixties. Funny story. The last song that Lemmy wrote for Hawkwind was called Motorhead. It just happened to be around the time when he uh, has a proclivity for um, amphetamines and speed and the band Hawkwind were more into the hippie vibe. They kind of split and said, hey, Lemmy, you're gone, buddy. Uh, Your style's different than ours. He felt kind of shitty. Funny story, he says, yeah, yeah, I I banged three of their broads. as I was walking out the door because you know, they, they, they took my life. Yeah. I took their ladies for one night, but they took, they took my whole life away from me. But he took that song. He took that, the term motorhead. And he said, I'm going to go and do something raw and something new. And, uh, dude, huge departure from space rock, which, I mean, if you look at Hawkwind, how they influenced say monster magnet, for example, bell bottoms, uh, fuzz guitars, a, a lot different style than what Lemmy's doing with Motorhead, which is, it's almost a garage punk rock style, you know. But it's funny because Lemmy points to Little Richard a lot as a huge influence on him. So it's kind of like Little Richard on speed, you oh, know yeah. what I mean? Well, I it's mean, like, what's, Lemmy, what, dude, I watched so many concerts this week. Me too. What is, what is Lemmy, what's the first thing Lemmy says? We're Motorhead, we're a rock and roll band. He doesn't say we're metal. He doesn't, or he says, we, we play, play rock, rock and roll. roll. We play, play rock, rock and, and roll. roll. That's it, man. It's, it's through three verses, uh, two minutes and 30 seconds, maybe three minutes if they're lucky. Straight ahead, he knows the formula of rock and roll, and that's true. He hasn't diverted from that, not one bit. Hmm. Nope. 
So, Lord Gates, when was your, I mean, we all just heard Motorhead at some point. We probably heard the name before we heard the band because it's, it was just such a, that logo is legendary. Their snaggletooth mascot's legendary. So, when did you first hear Motorhead and, you know, what, what drew you to the band? I actually got into them a little bit later in the 80s when they took the Cro-Mags out on tour with them because I was a huge early hardcore fan, like around 87, I think. And I remember someone, I, I was too, I think I was too young to go to the show, but I remember someone saying, hey, we're going to New York and we're going to see the Cro-Mags open for Motorhead. And I was like, Motorhead? Because they weren't played on the radio at all. I mean, I never, ever, ever heard Motorhead on the radio. And um, if it was, it was probably like on 94HJY when the doctor played them, you know, on the, the metal zone. But um, my cousin who lived down at Cape Cod, who turned me on to like Motley Crue and like Twisted Sister, like early Twisted Sister before, you know, uh, Stay Hungry came out. Um, she actually played one, I was down there one summer and I think it was right before, it was right around when they were when they were taking the Cro-Mags out. She uh, played me Bomber, the whole record, and I was like, "Oh, who is this?" Because you're right, Jay. It was like punk rock, but rock and roll, and I couldn't grasp the fact that he was doing that on that bass, making it sound like a guitar. You know, just driving well, the whole song. That's right. All right, so filling that void. Well, let's talk about that because sure. I mean, that I think is what sonically separates what motorhead does from so many other bands because lemmy wanted to be a guitar player but he he'll tell you in interviews he was not good at it when he discovered the bass and he realized he could make a living off that and then you kind of understand that he's playing his bass guitar like a guitar player would uh he specifically boosts those mids on that on his marshall uh super bass amp he pulls the bass off so he's not doing it He's not playing bass like an R&B bassist who's trying to put a lot of bass sounds into it. He, he's driving mids. He's overdriving the tone. He's using a pick. He's even playing power chords on some, at, at some of the phrasing. So think of it as just a really beefy uh, rhythm guitar more than, say, a bassist. You know, And that's mm -hmm. that with a pure Marshall sound coming out of uh, the guitar. You know, um, I mean, there's nothing more rock and roll than just straight up pure Marshall tone and that, both the bassist that and Rick, guitarist. That Rickenbacker, right? Wasn't that what he played? That's right. It's got a That's correct. Oh, that thing yeah. is beautiful, man. It is, yeah. I saw that tour, Greg, that you're talking about. They play in Providence, yeah. Because you... Carol and I went with... I, uh, you and I had started hanging around with each other, I think, right around that time. And I remember you saying, hey, I'm going to see da-da-da. And I didn't really think about... I was more allure about the Chromax. It was like, so... It was so, it was awesome. Loud though, right? It was, uh, it was Cromag's best wishes album. Tore the place up. It was amazing. Then when Motorhead was just sound checking, it was so loud. <laughs> I mean, that the old living room was not very big, but I mean big enough. But it was so people are like, "What the fuck? This is." I mean, we're talking lo like loud, loud, right? Like the only other band I've heard that loud was the Melvins. Right. I mean, it was, and they were just, when they came out and started playing, it was even louder. And I was, the next three days, my head was ringing, my ears were ringing. But yeah, it was fucking, it was amazing. You they saw, that out, was at the living room? That was at the living room. Oh my God, that place is so small. It only held like a couple hundred people. Yeah. And they tore it up. They just blew through it. Yeah. And fucking, they played like 45 minutes. 
and they all look pretty fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> they don't waste like, time. They don't waste time when they play. Uh, it's, nope. it's business, man. It's minutes business, straight up. No yeah. breaks, no talking. He just had a couple little one fucking blah, 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 and right into the next song. Blah, blah, blah. Everybody's got a show or two that they've not, that they missed in their life um, that they're, they look back on and they were this close to going and didn't go. 1988, it was at the Agora Ballroom in Hartford. Oh, in Hartford. And it was Overkill, Slayer, and Motorhead. So this was Slayer South of Heaven as the headliner. Motorhead was the band in the middle and Overkill. So can you imagine that lineup? What a wow. show that would have been mm. in a club. I mean, guys. That would have been amazing. And I think we yeah. didn't, I didn't, I know I didn't go because we had SATs the next day. And yeah. I knew that if I went to that show, you know, you would have been shit facing out late and you, and you, I would have bombed on the SAT. So I was like, I just had to, I missed it. So it's always one of those that I can imagine what a show that would have been. I've, I've only sick. really seen them. I don't know, maybe like four or five times. I didn't see them much. I only saw them like four or five times. I got into them a little bit later on, but they always just killed it. And I, I got to see the very last tour that they did when they were out with Anthrax. And, man, that was just like so memorable. Just I remember standing on the side of the stage with my buddy Rob just watching Lemmy, and I, and I just wanted to soak all of that in because I knew this was the last time I was definitely going to see him play. I knew it. There's no other, there's going to be no other tours. And he passed away. I think like, I think it was like passed a month after. December of 2015. Yeah. So we went there, I think, and saw that show right before my birthday. So November 28th. So it was beginning of November, I think. And he passed away the following month. Everybody knows that. I mean, Lemmy's touched so many people over the years that, you know, now there's a, there's of course a documentary about him which is really cool. Um, anybody hasn't seen that, you got to watch that. I mean, wasn't that produced by Dave Grohl? Was that not produced by Dave Grohl? I thought it was. It I may not have been. I don't know. There's a biopic coming out too. There's a whole brand new movie really? too about him. Yep. Who's going to play him? I don't know. I just saw the early – I wish I had some more. I just popped in my head. But yeah, wow. something, maybe Jake can find some info on it. But there's a movie full length coming out about Lenny. That's going to be cool, man. I'm but, really interested to see who plays him. But the, the fact that he touched so many people, I mean, obviously the Metallica reference is obvious because they played some, some of the cover songs by Lemmy, but I mean, it, it, it goes so far beyond that. And, it, and he's not just looked at as uh, musically a legend, but like he, Lemmy, was a legend because of how he presented himself, because of his attitude towards music and towards life. So that's something I wanted to touch on with everybody here is why do you think Lemmy – had such an influence and impact over so many people over so many decades. And again, not just because of the music, but because of who he was and how he approached everything. So while Bill, why do you think Lemmy touched so many people and impacted so many people? I think, I think number one is be probably because of his upbringing, you know, he kind of probably had a rough upbringing and uh, going into, you know, like in the early years, he did a lot of, obviously did a lot of partying, the drugs, the alcohol, whatever. So he got a lot of stuff in and out of his system, I think, at a really young age. And with all the touring and everything that he did and, and getting into these bands and, and, and going through the trials and tribulations of, of starting Motorhead and leaving Hawkwind, and I think he just learned, man. I think he just became, you know, like one of those people that picked everything up and he really used everything kind of to his advantage mentally. You know, I, I think he just – forged on because if you think about it the guy never really he didn't give up he's he like right up until the fucking end i mean yeah. he was in some bad shape so what i think is like all this stuff in his head just made him 
he was one of those people that took everything and actually thought about it and put it in his head. And when it came time to make decisions and treat people a certain way, he just, he treated people like he wanted to be treated. You know, he treated, you don't really hear too many people saying bad things about him. He had friends, like he says, I've got friends that are, you know, that don't drink or don't smoke. And he's, I've got friends that are junkies that I'm trying, that I've tried to help that I've tried, but you know what? I've accepted them. I don't care if people are, are alcoholics, junkies, gay, straight, whatever. And he said, like you said earlier with little Richard, he's like little Richard with his background. He goes, I love little Richard. I didn't give a shit about any of that. And I think that's the way that he approached life. He didn't give a shit about any of the, any of the, the aesthetic, like any of the bullshit. He appreciated people for who they were. And I think that attitude that he had is what made him so successful. When he spoke, people listened. Hey, Jamie, why do you think, I mean, looking at their, not just their catalog of music, which influenced a lot of people, but like, but Lemmy in general, I think just had such a, such an impact on, on heavy music and, um, and even people that didn't know very little about the band still know Lemmy. Um, so talk, what do you, why do you think that is? You know, he's one of those, those characters, you know, oozes charisma and it's not a show it's not fake it's he's one of those guys that he lives and breathes 100 percent authenticity he doesn't he's not swayed by popular culture or sentiment he knows who he is what he wants to do he does not he did not you know vary or or, or come off uh pretentious he was he's straight from the heart and i think that's why the fact that they can never put Motorhead or Lemmy into a category. Is it rock? Is it metal? Is it punk? I think because what he was doing was just so 100% from the heart. You know, you just, you, you can't fake, you can't fake that kind of authenticity. You know, that integrity of being true to himself straight up, but kind. Like Ian's in, talking to Ian uh, when he gives his interview, um, reading about Scotty and talk meeting with uh, Lemmy, um, Matt Pike. What they'll tell you is this guy will almost give sage advice that could pretty much change your course of life. And he'll do it in such a way that you're like, whoa, I, I was initially scared to meet Lemmy and I should be, but man, the guy gave me some great advice. I mean, who? it sounds like he's some sort of like spiritual guru in a sense. Um, that's the charisma, that, that aura that is probably larger than life, you know? Hey, Lord Gates, you had a chance to, uh, I'm going to give you a chance to uh, pop that, that photo up there, sir, but you had a chance to meet Lemmy. So I want you to, why don't you look at that? Look at that svelte, svelte guy there <laughs> looking tight, looking, looking nice. Tell us about, so how did you meet him? What were the circumstances and what was your experience? Uh, I was working at Mohegan Sun Casino and I actually had the night off and uh, Motorhead rolled into town. They played with Volbeat, Megadeth, and somebody else. I forget who it was, but my manager... So I had been at Mohegan for a long time. I had been over there like 15 years. My manager came up to me and said, hey, do you want to meet Lemmy? And I said, yeah, now. And he goes, all right. He goes, wait till they're done their set and then come backstage. So I went backstage and I'm standing there and all of a sudden my cousin's husband comes walking in back. 
and he's the tribal treasurer for Mohegan Sun. And he's a huge Motorhead fan. He loves Motorhead, Slayer, and Megadeth. So he was just all over this. So I said, hey, cool. We're going to go in and meet. He goes, yeah, yeah, awesome. And then I hear, yo, Gates, what's up? And I turn around and I see a friend of mine, Pop, from Providence, who was a huge punk rocker. He was in the Bastards. And he worked over, um, Bill, you remember Club Babyhead? He worked at Club Babyhead. He, he was like a, a roadie. Uh, really funny guy, but Motorhead, he ate, slept, and shat Motorhead. I mean, this guy was the biggest Motorhead fan I'd ever seen. He had a motor, he had the Snaggletooth, the Snaggletooth tattoo on him, had a big leather jacket with the Ace of Spades on it. So I go, you going in? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. My buddy, my buddy hooked me up. So we go in there and um, we're talking to Lemmy and Lemmy's like that cool uncle. You know, you want to hang out with the cool uncle who's, He's, he's not married. He's got all the cool chicks, you know, and he drinks a little whiskey and he smokes a little. He's like, here, have a sip of this. Your mom's not looking here, here, you know. And that's what Lemmy came off of is he was just, yeah. he's everything you think he's going to be. He's just larger than life. And, oh, you doing, you know? Sit down, you know. You want a drink? And I said, no, I can't drink here. And my buddy's pops like, I'll have a drink. Give me a, yeah, drinks it down. I'm a huge fan. Sign my tattoo. Sign my book. Sign my jacket. Sign me. Sign my head, you know? So my cousin's husband's standing there. And I go, you want to take a picture? And he goes, yeah. So um, let me put his arm around him and goes, and, and, uh, and what, what do you do here? And he goes, because we all kind of work there. And he goes, oh, I'm the Mohegan uh, Sun Tribal Treasurer. And he goes, oh, he goes, you part of the tribe? He goes, yeah. He goes, you don't look like a fucking Indian. <laughs> and I just, I lost it because this, he's whiter than I am. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't look like an Indian at all. But that was Lemmy. He was just like, got that little dig in there. And, you're, and we all laughed and everything. So we all said goodbye. And we took off. We left. And we were high-fiving each other. And oh, send me the picture. And I'll send you the picture. And a pop takes off. All right, I'll talk to you later. So two months later. My buddy Pop dies. He, oh, heart attack, dead. I mean, this guy was 50 years old, probably 50, yeah, probably 50, 49, 50 years old. Uh, when I went to the funeral in Providence, they had his coat that Lemmy signed, the leather jacket on his, on his casket, and they had the picture that I took. And I guess what they did is Lemmy – had found out that he died and they sent the picture to Lemmy and he signed it and it came back to the family and they put it on the casket. And I thought that was really, really fucking cool. That's the type of person Lemmy was. He was just genuine, took no shit from anybody, accepted everybody equally and just lived his life the way it should be. Yeah. And I was, I, I had a really lucky experience with Lemmy. Um, he used to uh, he used to come to my company's convention. He came a few times. Um, my company does a convention. I'm just it's for the nightclub business. But anyway, so Lemmy, it was in Vegas. It's in Vegas. So uh, he likes Vegas, of course. You know, Ace of Spades gambling. Of course, the guy loves Las Vegas. So um, he came to the convention a few times. And one time we were having a, um, a an event at a club. And I, I saw that he was there, but I, I wasn't thinking too much about it because I was working. Anyway, so I went upstairs. The upstairs part of this club was not was closed to everybody, but since it was my party or my company's party, I got to go upstairs. 
So I just kind of went upstairs just for a take a breather because I needed just to kind of clear my head, take a breather, get away from all the craziness. So I'm upstairs by myself and I look over to my right and who's walking toward me is Lemmy. And he's with somebody, it was maybe a personal assistant, but then that guy left. So for at least a good 20 minutes, it was just me and Lemmy sitting there talking and bullshitting. And it was like, it wasn't, you know, I've interviewed hundreds of people over the last 30 years, hundreds of bands, but it wasn't an interview. It was just two guys talking and hanging out. And I, the, some of the things I remember from the conversation were, yeah, I was telling him about, you know, you, you know, you're Lemmy, you're, you're, you know, you're obviously you're, you're a legend. And, and he's like, yeah, he's like, but let me tell you, he's like, I think a lot of people know me and they know the band name, but they don't know the music. At least that was his take. And this was like 2006, I believe, um, is when this happened. And then, you know, again, we're just, we're just shooting the shit. We're talking about touring and we're talking about, you know, his career. And then at the end of the, and then he was asking me, he's like, well, what is this? You know, he's asking me, what's, what's this all about? You know, he's like, I've been here at your event a couple of times. What, what is this? I'm explaining to him, eh, it's a, it's a strip club convention and we got this award show you've been to. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've been there. And, uh, he's like, the next time I come through, he's like, where do you live? And I told him Tampa. And he's like, next time I come through Tampa, he's like, make sure you, you come by, you let me know. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's awesome, dude. I really appreciate it. He said, I'll bring, I'm like, I'll bring a bunch of swag from our company and all this. And he's like, forget that mate, bring the girls. I was like, <laughs> okay. nice." <laughs> so that was it. Dave, he told this story the night that we were at Mohegan where he came around on tour. Uh, he did like a ma'am fest or, or some festival that played um, in Hartford at the, the outdoor, what's the outdoor venue in Hartford? The yeah. Meadows. So they, so they come and they play the Meadows and then after they're done, they, they take off and they go to the strip club. So they're at the strip club and he said that one of the roadies was playing pool with somebody else and there's this really, really skinny girl on stage stripping and he, he chalked the, the cue ball and it flew off the table and hit her in the head and actually knocked her ass down. <laughs> hit her so hard it knocked her ass down. Yeah. So Lemmy said that for the rest of the night, Every time she came out on stage, they would all go up there and go, hey, and just start throwing dollar bills. She made so much money because they felt so bad. He said, oh, she had this fucking egg on the side of her head over here from where the cue ball knocked and she bonged off the pole and she was like <laughs> a pinball game. And, I, and I'm just like, I'm just soaking it all in going, I should have a tape recorder just recording this shit. It's fucking great. I think they had kind of a little bit of a reboot and people got back into them when Dave Grohl did the ProBot thing. Yeah. And they did Shake Your oh, Blood. Absolutely. And they had yeah. that awesome video. You know, and, and Lemmy's always done cool shit. You know, he did the song, I Ain't No Nice Guy After All with Ozzy. He's done stuff with Wendy Williams. Um, he's just kind of like, he just kind of floats in between these different bands. And you're like, oh, yeah, he's still alive. That's awesome. Yeah, that sounds cool. You know, he's in the Hellraiser, did Hellraiser, he's in the Hellraiser and shit. And that's, that's what made him so unique and so cool is that he was just, he was able to float in all these different kind of genres. We're talking about the album. Um, again, we're talking about the 40th anniversary, um, which is, is not, it's not now technically, but they just announced the reason why this came up is because they just announced this huge package that we're doing that, that Lord Gates talked about earlier. It was just announced. And it's an album that was, you know, recorded in early 1980, uh, Rockfield Studios in South Wales. It was the, the album that broke them. Um, it made them basically a household name in the world of heavy music and influenced tons of bands for years to come. And we're going to, um, 
We're going to get into our personal top five songs for Motorhead, but I have a quick trivia question for you guys. Are you ready? Sure. All right. What did Lemmy call the band before changing the name to Motorhead? The Bastards. Correct. Was correct. Ah. And um, yeah, and he had a, I guess it was somebody from his management record label said, you're not going to make it. You won't, stores will not, some stores will not carry your CD if you call it Bastard or the Bastards. Like you can't, you can't call it that. So then he just, he changed it to Motorhead, which as you pointed out, Jay, was a song that he wrote for Hawkwind called That's Motorhead. Right. And it's right. the, a Motorhead is someone who does speed does or drugs. Speed. Yep. Yeah. So, and that was, yeah. Yeah, and he said a lot of songs, a lot of songs. He he comes back to telling people that you know, I'm a speed freak. Yeah, do it. I'm glad he was because he turned out some great shit. Well, yeah, (laughs) those songs would have never sounded like you need. I think you need something that you know, fucking (laughs) you know, to to have a band to headline to to run a band for that many decades. I think you need a little bit of special, a little bit, a little bit, (laughs) a little bit special, a little bit of special sauce. (laughs) (laughs) We do not condone if uh, for any children out there. We do not condone special sauce. Don't don't do drugs. Don't don't experiment with drugs. But if you're a grown ass man, hey, yeah, yeah, shit. Well, that, you know, and, and it's funny you say that because that's exactly why Lemmy said he got kicked out. He said, the, the problem wasn't that I did drugs. The problem was I did the wrong the drugs. Wrong drugs. Oh, yeah. wrong right. one. The yeah, rest right. of the guys were doing, you know, yeah. psychedelics while I was doing speed. And so the problem wasn't that I was in the drugs. I just didn't do the same drugs they did. And they right. didn't like it. So he was like, come oh. on, come on, guys, come on. Let's do it. And they're like, do hey. all the drugs. Like, no, dude, you're going you're too fast. Melted. Slow down. Slow down, down bro. Take your shoes off, Slow bro. Then he got Filthy Animal Taylor, and he was like, oh, he was, dude, let's do a lot dude, of speed. Oh, dude. Let's do and all the speed. The perfect drummer <laughs> yeah. for that band, dude. I perfect drummer on drill. speed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Fast oh, here's another, I, I would ask this as a, this is trivia, but it's not really because I know, I guarantee Bill knows the answer to this question. I shouldn't even bother asking it. I'm like an idiot. What band did Fast, um, did Fast Eddie Clark start after Motorhead? Fastway. Yeah, there you go. And now the Into the Void Great debate <laughs> all right so we're gonna we're heading into our top five so i'm gonna i'll start that right now and uh, this was uh obviously i'm sure tough for everybody with a with an episode on motorhead you knew we were going to do a top five motorhead songs and and like a lot of our top fives like all of our top fives they're they're, they're never easy uh it wouldn't Not be it. any fun if they were easy so we're going to uh so yeah we're, we're diving into our top five you know it's a tough one when it's when it's Lemmy and Motorhead, but we're gonna do our best and we're gonna come up with some with some songs and I, I guarantee you we're gonna have a pretty widely varying list. I think somewhat similar to our High on Fire top five. So I'm gonna I think I want to start this time with Lord Gates. Lord Gates, why don't you tell us what your top five Motorhead songs of all time are? This is extremely tough, extremely tough. So many great records, but I'll start at number five. I'm going to go with the song No Class, and I like the version that they do with Wendy O. Williams. I've always, always loved that song. It's brutal and dirty, and Wendy O. Williams is out there jumping around with her titties hanging out. No class. And it, they, they make such a great, dirty couple. I just associate dirtiness and filthiness with, with No Class. It's Motorhead, straight up. So, uh, number four, I'm going with Bomber because it's just amazing. Uh, I love that whole record. But that, the, the, just the way, yeah, the bomb, the bomb, it goes on and on and on, and it, it just rips. Number three, and this is a tough for the top three, okay? Uh, I would have put this at number one, but I have a really cool number one, so I stuck it at 
three because number two is pretty good too. I'm going with Ace of Spades. Ace of Spades is just hands down one of the best Motorhead songs. Everybody knows it. People have covered it. It's just you go see them live and they play that and it just it's it's awesome. Number two, I like this song for two reasons. One, killer song. Two, great, crazy music video. Killed by death. Killed by death is by far one of the iconic 80s motorhead videos. It is. It is so. That chick is hot, dude. That chick, that chick is so hot. Gosh, with she's the hot, dude. White yes. and black pants and her, <laughs> and her, and her, her, you know, milkshake springing all the boys to the yard. his hands. Yeah, big eyes. But my favorite part is when he says, killed by death. He's in the ground. He's dead. And they do a still store of him in green going, killed by death. And I just love that. And then the, the bike comes out of the grave, and it's awesome. All right. So my number one, the reason why my number one is number one is because I was in the entertainment business for a long time, and I've heard this song a thousand, thousand times at the end of the night at Mohegan Sun when we were getting ready to go home and they would put this song on. We are the road crew, and we are the road crew. Um, I don't know if you saw the video that came out a couple months ago, hashtag we are the road crew, and it was tied in. Dave, with what you talked about with Live Nation, remember where they were issuing, uh, they were dispersing money to crew members. Mm-hmm. You talked about that. Yep. Um, Motorhead put together a, uh, the remaining members of Motorhead and their crew put together a behind the scenes video with that song of shows the, the last tour that Lemmy did. And they pieced together all this backstage footage and they highlighted all of their crew members. And it was just awesome. It shows them on the bus backstage it shows them you know fucking strangling each other you know with cords and flipping each other off and all these great videos and when you when you when you think about an awesome band and how awesome they are live I remember that there's an awesome crew behind them so I'm going with we are the road crew for number one and um the cool story about we are the road crew is it was one of the last songs if not the last song that they wrote for ace of spades and when they wrote it and he wrote the lyrics they um they played it for the road crew and he's like and a lot, apparently a lot of the guys were actually in tears um, yeah. because they were like you know no one ever writes a song about the road crew so it really touched his road crew because they knew it came from the heart so that's an awesome list man um now we're gonna head over to wild bill what are your top five motorhead songs of all time all right number five i'm gonna go back to uh 2015 with bad magic uh which was the, obviously the last album that was released and it was a really cool video. It was in a bar, had some bikers in it, uh, tattoo people, all kinds of really cool shit. It's called, uh, when the sky comes looking for you. It's a great tune. Great tune. Um, I think it brought together a lot of the stuff from all of his albums, all of his songs. and just had a lot of meaning. It sounded really, really good. I just thought it was a, a great song, great riff, great drumming. So that's my number five. Number four, um, Off the World is Yours, which came out in 2010. And that's the song, The Brotherhood of Man. Nice. That's a good one. Such a nice. great, great tune. Um, I've always loved that song. I love that album. Um, I, just, I just think it, you know, the song means a lot. It's, it's got some real personal stuff. So I just think it's uh, just a really great song. So that's my number four. Number three, Off Overnight Sensation, which came out in 1996. It's called Shake the World. 
Um, a little bit different. Uh, you probably heard it. You probably haven't. I don't know. I just I've always really dug that soon that song. Um, Overnight Sensation, not like one of their more popular albums, but that song "Shake the World" is just a killer tune. Really, really good tune. Um, so that's my number three. Number two, I'm going with the song "Sacrifice" off the album "Sacrifice." which came out in 1995. The drumming at the beginning of that song is such a badass drum tone and just the, the beat is just phenomenal. The way that he's riding the ride and playing the double bass and everything is just, and, and the bass or the, uh, the bass guitar following it. It's just, it's phenomenal, man. So if you're not familiar with Sacrifice, you need to listen to that song because that song is phenomenal. So that's my number two. Number one, I had to go with it because I love it. Um, I love the album. I love the song. And, you know, it is my favorite Motorhead song, and that's Ace of Spades, off of Ace of Spades. So that's Absolutely. J-Man, we got to hit all you right. up. Now, what's your, what is J-Man's top five Motorhead songs of all time? All right, let's go number five, uh, 1982 album Iron Fist, title track, The Iron, Iron Fist. Fist. Then I went to number four, 1993, this album, Bastards. I got this. This is probably the first Motorhead album that I was able to buy in real time, you know, uh, as a fan and buying it when it came out. The song Burner off Bastards. Love that song. That's a good one. Uh, number three, it's, it's kind of it's one of Gates' favorites. 1984 off No Remorse, Killed by Death. Love that. Killed by death. Killed by death. Killed by death. (laughs) It's great. It's great, dude. Uh, Number two, title track from 1980, Ace of Spades, the song Ace of Spades. Come on, dude. So monumental. Killer. Iconic. The bass line on that. He actually, if you go through the catalog, you'll hear where he kind of brings that same kind of kind of bass lead into uh, a couple other tracks. Overkill. Overkill. It's just so good. It's so good. My number one, I went to 1979, title track off the album Overkill, song Overkill. I chose this one. There's something about the production of the guitar on this album that's a little bit more darker than Ace of Spades, a little bit more bass, bass feel to the, to the guitar track. I just love the tone on Overkill. Absolutely. Nice list, J-Man. All right, I'm going to go uh, my list here, my number five. Bill mentioned it already. I thought I was going to be the only person to hit it, which was Brotherhood of Man. Um, from again from 2010's World Is Yours, it's it's a I love I like the lyrics. It, basically, it's about how man is the enemy and man is destroying the earth. Um, that we are the enemy kind of thing, and it's very doomy. I mean, it's one of the most doomy songs I've ever heard from Motorhead. Almost more metal doom, uh, which was kind of a, a cool kind of a shift for them. And I should let me just say real quick too, I did not put not to I argue with you guys putting it on your list. I didn't put Ace of Spades on my list just because I thought. It's so, I mean, it's like a given. Um, so that's why maybe I just wanted to give room for a couple other songs. So that being said, Ace of Spades would be on anybody's list. But my number four is Live to Win from Ace of Spades. Mm. Um, always yeah. loved that song. And I mean, Ace of Spades was the first album I ever got from Motorhead. It's the only album I've really spent a lot of, a lot of time with the whole album. Like not a live album, not a greatest hits, but like an, a studio album that I would listen to front to back constantly. So I feel like I know all the songs really well. I've always loved Live to Win. I probably could have picked all five songs from Ace of Spades. That's how much I like the album. But I've always loved Live to Win. Number three, um, Motorhead is like Metallica in the sense that 
Metallica writes co- when they do cover songs. Not only do they kind of make them their own, but in a in a lot of ways, I think they do them better. Like Metallica, just it's like sorry we made your song better when we did it, but they kind of do sometimes. And Motorhead's kind of the same way. Like when they do a cover song, they kind of make it cooler. You know what I mean? They add their own edge to it. So my, I had to throw at least one cover song in here. So I threw one that I think is off a lot of people's radars. It's a duet they did with a band called Girl School, and it's called Please Don't Touch Me. It's actually a cover song from a, some, somebody named Johnny Kidd and the Pirates from 1959. But it's a cool duet that Lemmy does with a female singer. Girl, girl School, if you never heard of Girl, girl School, they're kind of like the female version of Motorhead. They sound a lot like Motorhead. Their style is very similar to Motorhead, which is I'm sure why Lemmy and Motorhead decided to do this duet with them. So it's fast. It's kind of punky. It's, it's a cool tune. I really like it a lot. That's my number three. Please don't touch uh, the duet with Girl School. And then my number two, back from Ace of Spades, is Love You Like a Reptile. Oh, that's um, awesome. That song's yeah. so great. Good. Yeah, I've always loved that song. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Got it. Just, uh, wait a minute, hold on. Before you continue, that, that has some of the best lyrics of any song, but Eat the Rich has the best lyric ever of the bacon torpedo. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <right. absolutely. laughs> okay, continue, Dave. <laughs> there you go. And Lovey Licker, like I said, it's got, it's got a great riff, great vocals. Um, and my number one is, is a song that um, it's just of all the Motorhead songs that I listen to, Mo- Iron, this song, Iron Fist, the song Iron Fist from Iron Fist is, is my number one. It's the one I always go back to. I put it on a bunch of different mixes, like workout mixes or metal mixes or whatever it is. It's just a song that, I don't know, man, there's something about it that I always go back to. Uh, it's been my favorite Motorhead song since I first heard it. Um, so there it is. My number one is Iron Fist from the album Iron Fist. So that's, cool. that's it, Very man. Cool. So Very those cool. are, uh, we had a lot of different songs. We had a couple, the only ones that I know were repeats. Everybody loves Ace of Spades, of course. Uh, Bill and I had Brotherhood of Man. Jay and Lord Gates had um, Killed by Death. And uh, Jay and I had Iron Killed Fist. Killed by Death. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, a lot of different tunes so yeah and we're and we're really looking forward to um for everyone hearing the interview with ian because you know to be able to spend that kind of time with lemmy uh one-on-one every day and especially at a a difficult time in lemmy's life when let's be honest he was towards the end of his life he was having a lot of health issues um and ian was you know he was given a very very important responsibility It's, it's basically keeping lemmy healthy keeping him on his meds and being there for shows. And there was so much to what he was doing. And the fact that they trusted Ian with that job actually mm-hmm. should tell you a lot about Ian. And, and obviously Bill knows Ian pretty well, but um, a really cool guy and a really cool interview coming up. So we're looking uh, forward to everybody hearing that. And now the Into the Void feature interview. And yes, this is our feature interview with veteran drum tech Ian Gaynor. You'll remember him if you've heard our first episode where he talked about life on the road and had some great stories to tell. This time, we go really in-depth with Ian's time as the personal road tech for Lemmy from Motorhead. So without further ado, we're going to kick it over to our interview with Ian and talking about his transition from touring with Anthrax to getting the gig with Motorhead. Were you out on tour with Motorhead when Anthrax was touring with them later on? Yes. Uh, are you talking about later being the 
the final tour. Yeah, the final stuff. Yes, I would, but I wasn't with Anthrax. I was with Motorhead. You were okay. All right, I I, I definitely want to get into that because I'm wondering if there was a cross pollination, you know, the, between you and the Anthrax guys. And well, they had a personal phone number to call when they had a question about Lemmy's health. Was that what you went into immediately after Anthrax? You went out. Well, with- it happened because Anthrax was in Mexico City. The guy who who's one of the best people. Uh, I keep saying that. Maybe I need to come up with new compliments for other individuals. But this guy was the Steve Luna. He was Lemmy's guy for years. Uh, mm. He had other long terms, so I shouldn't say that. But they were old friends, and he did a lot of the personal assistant stuff on the road. But he was also a good bass tech, so he would, whenever uh, Lemmy's guy would, would be away, he would bass tech for him too. Um, and he just he wanted to get out of touring all the time. He had a local thing that he was going to get into. And so he let him know. He was like, look, next tour, which was coming up very soon after the, the one we were on. He was like, I'm not coming back. And um, I had grown to know Eddie, the tour manager, Eddie Rocha, mm-hmm. who's also that, that whole, if you get into Motorhead's crew, that's just one of the most family. They all insult the shit out of each other in mm-hmm. such a loving way. And it's always been a real family situation because Lemmy was the guy. So he would, he would nurse that and he took care of that and made sure it was that way. He wouldn't stand for, for dissension anyway. You know, if somebody didn't fit, they were gone because that was his family. And so everybody did fit together. And um, so Steve was getting out and I, Eddie just texted me out of the blue. He was, he was like, I need you to call me as soon as you can. I was like, Oh God, what's happening? He was, I don't even work for these guys. And I'm, you know, I got to call him. So I called him and he said, would you in any way be interested in doing this personal assistant stuff for Lemmy? And I was like, ah, I don't know. I could talk to Steve about it, find out the details, and I could give you an answer. I don't know. I, I'm not counting it out. I, because of the eye teching thing that I've done in, in the interim, I work with a lot of diabetic patients, and Lemmy was diabetic. And they said, well, we know you have a medical background, and as limited as it is, and it's only about eyes, we get it. But if you know anything about diabetes, you've already got a leg up on everyone we've ever had work with. So can you consider it? And uh, I talked to Steve and he was like, yeah, it's fucking great. You know, you get to be Lemmy's friend and, and tour around and do stuff and take care of minor details, basically. And he told me the downsides, which I, I won't get into with most people, but uh, there aren't a lot. So, you know, um, I just kind of said, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I flew to Amsterdam was the first thing and got into a hotel and waited down in the lobby and they took me up and said, hey, you know, you got to come meet Lemmy. Let him meet you. He introduced us, and Eddie gave me a warning early. He said, Lemmy likes to argue. He doesn't like it when everybody's a yes man, but you could also go too far. So have at it. You know? <laughs> good <laughs> luck. Pick your battles. Yeah, good yeah. luck. Pick your battles. <laughs> you like, yeah. Fly, little bird. <laughs> right. Here you go. That's exactly him. Yeah. He was pretty good at it, but he didn't win. He'll tell you. He, he would have told you that he won every argument, but. That crew was stellar, though. When I, when I was working at Mohegan, they came through. I think they played with Megadeth. I, th- I yeah. think, it, or Megadeth and Volbeat, I think, was the tour. And we, we hung out all day working with those guys. And I mean, we got to hold Lemmy's bass and take pictures and just really, really cool. But God, they had their shit together. They really yeah. were just salt of the earth people. And that, that, that comes from just being the same guys every time. Yeah. You know? 
like, yeah, for it's a something, long time. It's something every yeah. roadie has told a band member for years it, where there's a, a large turnover. So if you just keep your guys, if you just try hard, and it's not always their fault that they can't. I mean, guys move on and not every roadie is ready to be with that band. all the time. Right. But if everybody can work hard on just being the same crew every time, you get in that, in that stuff. And those guys were all, they are all the most professional dudes. But at the same time, they're not. It's also a rule within Motorhead that you're allowed to do whatever drug or <laughs> alcohol you desire. Who yeah. cares? But do your fucking job and don't fuck up. Yeah. The moment you do, maybe somebody's looking at you because you were drunk that day, or you, you know. Yeah. And then that's yeah, your problem. Probably, probably not going to get too many of those mulligans if you do fuck up. You know, don't uh, burn I, your bridges. They, they were forgiving. I mean, if you could prove basically that the alcohol really didn't have a lot to do with the fact that the bass amp went down, well then, you know. Prove it. <laughs> well, the other the other thing too is you just they just point at Lemmy and go, listen, this guy's been doing it for how many years? Right. Okay. If he can get messed up and he can play on stage and do an amazing show, yeah, and then come off stage and get messed up more, you should be stories to, about that. You should be able to fix. He talked about one show. And, yeah. He basically got stood up, played the bass, and yeah. was, he might as well have just been put back down on something and gurneyed out. He didn't remember if he had so many of those. Grab however many pills in the bag. Take a, a handful and try them. I wanted just so to get back. I just wanted, um, a couple of questions. What was a typical day for you working with Lemmy? Okay, so there were um, – I, I don't know how much I should get into on the health side of things because, you know, nobody wants you to sit there and take them down on their – on the things that were wrong. He, yeah. had, he had schedules to keep with medication, so I helped him keep those schedules. So I would go to his room and knock on the door or sometimes just call his room, and I would usually check with him the night before to see how he wanted to handle the next day because sometimes he had two or three days off in a row. Now, they did that a lot. They would have a show, two days off, or three – and then have a show, sometimes four or five days off. And if there was travel in there, they give Lemmy his rest. You know, he didn't need, they had a nice guarantee. They put together the right tours. They, they made it um, happen the right way. The routing was good so that he didn't have to go far in between each one. And they were, you know, there were some that he complained about, but he was, he was the most brilliant complainer you, you would have ever met. I mean, you would think that, that the guy was absolutely miserable on a day with him, but he wasn't. He just, Everything was a big deal, <laughs> but it was, he's 70 and his body is riddled with the, the results of drug and alcohol for, for so many years. So um, a typical day would be, I'd either go or call in the morning. I'd help him. I'd just set him out and say, this is the meds you're supposed to be taking. Uh, he knew them. He, he would look at them and make sure I wasn't slipping anything extra in or I hadn't taken one out, you know, <laughs> I guess. But he, you know, he would say sometimes, he'd be like, what's that one? Like, you just were prescribed that and your wife told your wife, your girlfriend told me that that one's one that you take. Here's the bottle. This is why you take it. This is what it is. And he'd be like, yeah, I remember. Okay. So he knew his stuff, but he, he liked to have, I think, a, a system like that. And, and it kept me involved and it kept him on task and, and stuff. So medications first, I'd say, he'd say, I'm going back to bed. Like, okay, but we, this is either a show day or not a show day. It didn't matter in that sense. Uh, I would always make an agreement with him for later. You want me to get you up? You want to pick a time? Yeah. Uh, I don't really want to sleep past 11. I go, okay, I'll be back at 11. So I'd go do stuff. Usually there's some, some stuff he needed in the room. You know, we'd usually take whatever came from the last show on the rider, cheeses, fruit, and stuff like that, that he could eat, whatever alcohol. I'd go pick up alcohol if we flew to a place and we didn't bring the, you know, the stuff that we wanted. 
lot of private jets because he didn't want to go through the whole airport thing. So we'd take these little charter jets with six seats or something like that in a lot of foreign countries and stuff. We were always, you know, doing that. It would take him no time. Goes through, drives up to a tiny little building for an airport, goes in, puts his stuff through the little security thing. They sit in a VIP room for a little bit. And then you, they drive you right out to the plane. You get out and get on. Same thing happens on the way out. And uh, we did that a lot. Um, later, I'd wake him up, and he would want to read. He'd want something. I usually would have to force him to eat something a little bit. Not force, but, you know, have it. I was, if I brought it, he would eat it. If I said, hey, you want me to pick you up something? He'd be like, nah. So, and they encouraged. And I was always talking to management. You know, I was like, hey, uh, Todd. Todd Singerman loves Lemmy. To this day, I'm not going to say loved because he, to this day, I'll tell you, he, he really cared for Lemmy and it didn't matter what. He would be in, in my ear on the phone saying, I want you to try to get Lemmy to do this stuff if you think that Lemmy's up for doing this stuff. Uh, he has an interview later. We would love him to do that interview. He has uh, press when we get there. We would love for you to have him there on time. Okay, no problem. I would go talk to Lemmy. Sometimes he didn't want to do it. I'd say, look, man, here's the reasons why. I've been given the reasons why. That would turn into a little bit of an argument. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe he would totally be cool with it that day. It was always a surprise. And then I'd go talk to, to Todd, and Todd would always reassure me, look, if you get the feeling that Lemmy doesn't need to be out there, it's hurting his health, whatever it is, you tell me because I'll pull the plug. I'll send everybody home. We'll try to give everybody severance. It won't be as big of a deal as it has to be. And they always did that. We, if we had to cancel a tour, because I always did the late stuff. Everybody knows Lemmy was a fucking god everywhere else. Um, I did the last three years, and they were tough years for him because he didn't get around as well. His, he, his feet and his boots didn't – They were there was a little numbness from, from the diabetes. So he couldn't feel where he was going a lot, so he didn't like stairs, and he didn't like uphills and he didn't because he would be short of breath. Uh, that wasn't a that, – that's not – I'm not telling you guys something – Nobody knew. Uh, yeah. I, you guys talked about the later touring stuff with Anthrax and whatnot, where we had to cancel a couple of shows. That one in um, the one in Salt Lake City was real tough because he had to come off stage after he'd started, and he just couldn't breathe. And we knew why, and he knew why. And had he done more to fix it beforehand, he probably wouldn't have been in that situation. But he's Lemmy, and you can't tell Lemmy on any given day what to do. That's exactly why he became who he was, and that's exactly what everybody loved about him. So he wasn't going to give. Everything was his but, own terms. Right. And if, if he didn't want to do it, he didn't want to do it. But he understood that there were consequences to that. And if he, he did his own thing, and if it was hurting him too bad, he'd try to fix it. He would finally give in. I, I saw the man spend two nights in a hospital at all, and every doctor around him was encouraging him to go <laughs> several times. So it was the kicking and screaming to get him to go to those two. As far as getting him to be on stage, he loved that. So that was not a problem. He had a schedule for when he would put his, do his, he would shave, dry shave. Mm-hmm. He'd hand him a, a Gillette razor, razor, nothing. And you could hear it. <clears throat> Just, <laughs> like, you know, it's exactly what you'd expect from like some old West kind of thing. Or they do it with the knife or something, you know? And he'd taff it about six times and all this shit would fall everywhere. And I'd put the razor back in the bag and he wanted to get his razor done at a certain time, blah, blah, blah. And he was never a, like a sort of slave driver about that. He just, he would tell me, razor, aftershave. He put aftershave right on after the dry stuff. Just, yeah. <laughs> like, doesn't that hurt, Lemmy? Not anymore. I'm Lemmy. Yeah. 
the pain hurts the pain. Not That's the right. <laughs> so what's something dealing with like the day to day with Lemmy, what's something that he did that probably surprised a lot of people as far as like reading or, you know, well, that that's huge. He read all the time. Yeah. He, he would read all the time. He mostly, you know, he collected all that stuff, the, the world war two memorabilia and stuff. And I, I'll call it what it is. It was Nazi memorabilia. Most of the time he yeah. always said they had the coolest stuff. So that's the stuff he collected. If we had made better stuff and it all looked like the Nazi stuff, then he would have collected that stuff. It had nothing to do with being Nazis and he wasn't one himself. But he liked that stuff and he wanted to find it and he knew everything about it and it came from him always reading it. And all of his fans, he had all these super fans, these guys that would come and hang out in every city. Some, some did 13 shows on a 15-show run. Yeah. And I would have to make an accommodation for them to be in the dressing room for a little while. They were great. I love them. And yeah. I always had a saying. I would say, all right, off you fuck. <laughs> and, that, and they would fuck off. Uh, but they were great people. I'm just, you know, I'm just picking on. But we always did that. Um, so they would bring in books. And so he didn't always know what the books were going to be about or if they were subject matter that he would like. But I had a box of books I would keep in the bay of the bus if we were touring in Europe or whatever. If he wanted a choice, I would always keep him like a choice of five and keep him in the stuff so that if he was looking through his stuff, he could find five different books he could possibly read and he would read everything. It's all weird. Somebody sent him a book about an owl one time and it, the owl was the main character and he read like half of it. He said it sucked. He read half the book and then he was like, this sucks. Um, but he, he knew a lot about a lot because he read a lot and that he could have a conversation with anybody about anything, you know, and surprise you with his knowledge about it. What about music? <laughs> Let me change it. Did he listen to, and do you like to listen to any music? Like, do you guys have anything in mind that he would listen to? Did you to? hear anything already? I, I will. I, uh, I'm going to say that I know he was a big little Richard fan. Yeah, that's true. I know he, he loved, loved little, little Richard and, little and Richard respected him. And, um, I know he's big into, cause he had the band with the, with the drummer, um, Slim, Slim Jim. Yeah. The Head Cats, Stray right? Cats. Like Stray the, Cats. Yeah. Head Cat. Yeah. Head Cat is the name of his band. Yeah. Right. Him. But yeah. Stray Cats was the, yeah. Yeah. So he had um, that type of stuff, like swing maybe or something. Would you be surprised if I said ABBA? No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. He was okay. a big ABBA fan. Wow. He loved ABBA. And he was a huge Beatles fan, but I mean, that's not an embarrassing thing or anything. Mm -hmm. No. But he hated the fact that I wasn't. I am not a Beatles fan. Uh, I'm not either. Me either. Right. He would, okay. This, oh, really? I don't Who? like him. Who? Okay. Nope. I don't. No. Dave doesn't like Beatles. That's great. Finally, somebody else. <laughs> I don't like, like the Beatles. Greg, do you like the Beatles? I like everything. Hey, All listen, <laughs> at what other time are we ever going to have five people in one spot and three out of five or four out of five don't like the Beatles? Right. right. That's never going to happen again. So yeah. kudos to us, I guess. But True. Not that they're terrible. I just never got into like, any of it. And I told him that. Uh, sorry if that's coming up on your guys' screen. What? No. Mark is red. I like ABBA better than the Beatles. We'll put it that way. Okay, me too. So he would, he had this little speaker thing that he would hook to his phone or his iPad. It was always his iPad and he would scroll through and he would just play shit. And it was great because he'd be reading and listening to music and I'd be sitting across from him having a drink, watching TV a little bit, just hanging out. And then if it was Beatles, he would uh, play a Beatles song and he just, he'd like hit it and he'd just look at me. He knew, he, cause I said, cause I told him and I probably started this, but I told him. I don't know the whole Beatles anthology because I didn't like what I heard so far. I haven't listened to it all. You think there's one that just really stands out? Play it for me. I'm like that with the Rolling Stones. 
the black song, whatever uh, paint they it, used for paint Tour of Duty, Paint It Black. Yeah. They, remember Tour of Duty, the TV show? Mm-hmm. I loved that TV show. And I remember I, that song was always stuck in my head and I really liked it. I was like, oh, I must be a Rolling Stones fan. Then I listened to everything else. And I was like, mm, not really. You know, there's some stuff I liked, some stuff I really didn't. Ian, I just wanted to, for, there's, there's a lot of people out there, I'm sure, that probably have glamorized what it means to be a roadie and maybe fantasized about what that life would be like. You know, for anybody that like has fantasized about what it'd be like to be a roadie, like what are some of the things you would tell them are actually really cool about it? And some of the things that you're like, you have no clue what you'd be getting yourself into. I have this talk fairly often in the sense that if someone asks me what I do, I, I don't mind talking about it. So I typically will say I have a couple jobs. I have a traveling job and I have a thing. And if I say I have a traveling job and they press, then I'll say, oh, they're like, what is the traveling job? Okay, I'll tell you. And then they always say, man, that's a really cool job. You must be so happy or something. Or, or God, you must love that. What a freaking great thing. And I go, yeah, but it's a job. You know, it's a, just like anything else. It has its really big ups and really big downs. And, and you have to be ready for that. Um, if I just had to name a few things off the top of my head of what's good and what's bad, I would say uh, what's good is the camaraderie, first of all. I'm a guy who... I, I didn't have a lot of really close friends growing up. I lived in rural West Virginia, had a few people that we would go camping, hiking, fishing, that sort of thing. And I had my family and everyone else was kind of an asshole. You know, I mean, just in general in West Virginia in that time, you know, I didn't like football players particularly. I wasn't into wearing camouflage to school. I didn't chew tobacco. And there's all kinds of reasons I didn't get along with everybody, but not in a bad way. I was like, I blended in. I was a chameleon of, of sorts and I could, I could have fun with the jocks for 10 minutes and then I could go over here, but I didn't, that didn't mean I liked them and I hung out with them. The first time I did a tour, that 12 Stones thing, uh, all the band members, all of my crew, which was really very small, Scott Doc Radin, if you know any guitar tech's name in that business, he's one to know. He's just so cool, so genuine, been doing it forever and, and a really great person. And he works for Alice in Chains a lot currently. If you see, if you go to an Alice in Chains show, once they start up, super long dreadlocks, always wears Vans shoes. Um, white, white guy from Australia originally. But anyway, um, him and just all the people that I toured with at that time, there was, you, you come back home and all the jokes you made in the back lounge and all the shitty things that happened to you, I always compared it, and Bill, you can, you can swap me out of the fucking air if I'm way off on this, but like the military would do for people, this is like a low scale of that. You go and you spend all this time really close with just this few people, and you experience the worst shit, the scariest shit, the most awesome shit, the most deviant shit that you've ever seen all of it happens and then you come home and you can't talk to anyone about it <laughs> because no one fucking gets it you you can go to the bar and so you make the joke you made in the back lounge that had everybody just dying because of what you've been through and it just doesn't mean shit to anybody you tell the same stories you tell people what happened and they're not there so you just don't have it so you crave it and you go back and you go and do it again and you go god I need this because these are the only people that get me these are the only people that, that understand who I am because I, I don't know who to be when I'm home because this is where I spend all my time too. So that's the number one best thing about it. And it could probably be lumped into the worst thing about it in the sense that when you get home, you don't really know 
who to talk to and what to do. You don't have those people around. The, one of the shitty things is that everyone thinks it's really great to have a travel job because, God, you get to see all these wonderful places. And that's wrong for two reasons. One of them is you don't get to see those places. You pull into the back fucking parking lot and you load gear in and you are there for the most part. You might have two or three hours where you can walk around, but if you're not able to come right back because somebody dropped a light out of the sky and it hit the drum kit and you have to rebuild it, then, you, you know, you better be within five fucking minutes of there or you're fired and sent home. So you can't hop in a cab, go across town and see the sights or something, you know? So most of the time you're doing that. On your day off, you can go do some shit and it's pretty cool. So that's true. That's a plus. Um, and the other reason for that, the travel is bad, is you, I can't plan anything. I can't be a friend to someone at home. Bill knows he went through this. He invited me to so much shit and said, when I, when I get back, let's do this. When you get back, let's do this and do that and do this other thing. And I would get back and I would accept a tour two weeks later that wasn't on the books before. And if I didn't go, I didn't make the money. And so I have no real friends at home. Bill's great. We've been on the phone, staying in touch and stuff like that. But who, who am I going to call up and just go hang out with? Because I moved. If I were in my hometown and I left my hometown to go on tour every time, that might be different. But I moved away when I was a kid and, and moved a little bit. So I feel like the travel thing can be a real drag because you, you, somebody wants to have a wedding. Well, fuck you. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know where you're going to be next year. You can't plan a year ahead of time. The tour hasn't been booked yet. But if you can't be there, there's a thousand guys sitting at home ready to do your job and they probably will do it for cheaper. So you need to make yourself very valuable all the time to every band that you work for. You have to say, well, this is why I'm valuable. And one of mine, because I'm not a great drummer and I'm not a, uh, I didn't grow up playing in bands and I don't have all those connections. I had to be good at my job right then and there. So I had to, to uh, be available and be somebody you can get along with on tour. You know, my butt doesn't stink because I try to wash it and mm. I don't, you know, it, it stinks. I'm not, everybody's butt stinks, but I try to wash my butt on tour and I try to be somebody who doesn't leave their socks in the front lounge and you have all those things you have to be. And that means that you have to be a, a certain kind of person. You have to be a certain kind of person to leave your house for that amount of time. You have to be a certain kind of person to not care. You have to be a certain kind of person to get arrive in a foreign country with all people who might make your life miserable the very next day if you fuck up and they hate you for it. And you have to do it with your big boy panties on because you're probably going to be traveling alone if you have to come back home and you don't know anyone there. You don't know what you're doing there. You don't know the language and you have to use your head. So all those things are factors for people and somebody that just asked that question or has that conversation, they may not have any idea. You asked me earlier about working with Anthrax and Motorhead. Did I kind of do that at the same time? That's, I had to leave Anthrax. So they're probably still a little bitter about that, and I don't blame them. But they had, I had their blessing because I was doing the Lemmy thing, and Lemmy and management strongly suggested that I not go back with Anthrax if I could just focus on Lemmy. And they, I'm not saying it was all them. I, I too said, yeah, sure, I would like to do that. I, I enjoyed that more, too. You know, not being stuck at stage. I ate at really amazing restaurants. I, I, I explored more of the cities and stuff like that. But the reason I mentioned this is in 2013 and 14, in 13, I spent 82 days in Europe and in, in straight, straight days. And in uh, 14, it was 81 days straight. 
And I did that because the two bands overlapped. I went with Anthrax, Motorhead was coming, Motorhead was going home, Anthrax was coming back. That happened the first year. And then it was flip-flopped. It was Motorhead, then Anthrax, then Motorhead. So instead of fly me home, they're in the same management. They coordinated it to keep me there and say, well, when the next band comes over, I'm already there. That band flies home, next band comes over, I'm already there. And those stints were so long, I, I wanted to eat American soil when I came back. I like traveling, but being in Europe, the food's different. The languages are always different. You know, you're going to different places and you just, it's not home. It's not the USA. And I love, oh, yeah. I love this country. So I, I wanted to come home. But, um, yeah. So the, it did. There were times you were asking if I kind of was doing both <laughs> and it, very close times. Can I mention one more thing about that? Absolutely. Um, we did the, the, the motorboat cruise. Uh, the first motorboat cruise, I was working for Anthrax on it, and I was working for Lemmy. And, oh, my God. Motor, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, Son of a bitch. Oh, my God, dude. The, okay, you know how a cruise, you guys all been on cruises? Yeah. No. Okay. No. Anyone who hasn't, these boats are massive, and it's multiple floors, and they're spread out by hundreds of feet. So in uh, some case, a thousand or so feet. I don't know how long this thing was. It was pretty damn long. So the elevators are always used by the fans and they're very, constantly busy. And I had to run back and forth between being a personal assistant and being at the stage. The stage can be at the other side of the ship and often was. And the, the, the really nice cabins are kind of either at the front of the ship and there's some really nice ones at the back of the ship. So wouldn't you know it, Anthrax is playing at the front of the ship and we're at the back of the ship. And... Maybe it was vice versa, but I had to run and use the stairs almost the whole time. The, the, the second morning, I, I think I worked a 19 hour day that day because um, I had to load in, you know, you have to load in at the butt crack of dawn for this, for the cruise ship. So I'd load in with anthrax and then I had to go get Lemmy at his hotel and, you know, spend the day with him. And then when I came back, anthrax was playing the first night. So then I had to build a show, be there for sound check, you know, probably for load in and the actual stage at like noon or one and then build the show and sound check by four, probably five o'clock, and then have uh, like three hours to be back with Lemmy to take care of his dinner plans, his, all that stuff, and then go do the show. And once I packed up, come back and be Lemmy's personal assistant while he went to the casino and did his thing, you know? So 19 hours. I remember counting it up after this because I went to my cabin finally, and I, I was allowed four hours sleep. I was going to have to be back up to do it all again the next day. They didn't, I didn't have a concert to do except for a motorhead one, so I could spend the whole day with him. It was cool. but. I went to move my legs to get out of bed and they didn't do it. Mm. They wouldn't do it. Mm. Like, have you ever had a muscle where your brain's going, okay, go. And it just sits there. And that's what my legs were doing. And my torso went forward on the bed. Like, okay, here I go. Nope. I had to wait and try to wiggle toes, flex knees, do whatever I could try to get things going for about a half hour. It took me. Oh, wow. I always get up early-ish anyway for what I have to do. So it didn't make me late. Because that's another thing. If you're gonna be a roadie, you're be 15, on time. If you're not 15 minutes early, you're already fucking late. Mm-hmm. Roadies out there, fucking remember that. Yeah. So my legs wouldn't move, and that was that was the hellish thing of, of doing that. But that was uh, a very interesting time, indeed, to try to do both things. I never double dipped again uh, in that kind of capacity to try to be a personal assistant and a, a drum tech. They loved Lenny, uh, Mickey, and Phil. Phil was Lemmy's biggest fan yeah. forever. I am sure, I haven't talked to Phil in a while, but we did talk a good bit after that and he, after Lemmy died and he 
he was heartbroken and mm. but at the same time happy that he didn't and this is something we've all shared is that I, I was always happy Lemmy didn't end up I told him early on when we were having an argument okay not early on it was uh, Austin Texas after the Salt Lake City show we had a little thing a uh, little argument it wasn't an argument I shouldn't say that Todd called yeah uh, Todd called and he he suggested a tactic with Lemmy that had worked before to get him to take care of himself a little better. So like I said, Todd always had Lemmy's best interest at heart. He, he really did. As a manager, I never seen that. It's usually about the bottom dollar. Everybody can fuck off. You know, uh, we need to make yeah. the money and make it now. Todd wasn't like that. He wanted to make the money. He wanted to make everybody money. And he also wanted Lemmy to be healthy. And he suggested to me one day saying, look, Ian, I know, I know, he said this, maybe this is Todd playing the field, but he said, Lemmy, I know, or Todd, Ian, I know that Lemmy cares about you. And if you tell him that you don't think it's necessary for you to be there doing this job, if he's not going to follow the instructions to help him, because that's part of your job is to be there to, to get him better and, and keep him on a, a track, you know. And he said, I think you need to tell him that there's really no point to you being there. And I said, okay, I don't want to lie to him. I mean, is that a thing? Is that something that is going to happen if I can't get him to take care of himself? Am I going to be sent home? You know? And he's like, not really. Uh, <laughs> he said, Lemmy's not going to take care of himself if he doesn't want to. It doesn't matter who's here. But uh, he said, it's, it's a tactic that's worked in the past when Lemmy does care. That, and it might turn his thinking not to himself, but to what he might lose if he doesn't start to do some of the things, at least some of the time. And so I got off the phone with Todd and it was about probably an hour before I went into Lemmy's room and I go in and he's sitting at his book at his desk. And as soon as I came in, I was like, Hey, Lim. And he goes, so you're leaving. And I go, Oh shit. I didn't say that. I don't know where you got that. I guess you talked to Todd. He, he just nodded. I said, I didn't say I was leaving Lim. I just said, if you're not going to try if you're not going to do this stuff, and what we were trying to get him to do was drink less liquid. His body didn't want to push out the liquid that he was consuming, and that's how it built up. And it would build up around his lungs, and that's why he couldn't breathe. And that's why he couldn't perform. And that's why he was miserable. And that's why he would wake up in the middle of the night and not be uh, getting the proper sleep, all kinds of stuff. Everything was a domino effect, and that was something that we could do. And the doctors had proven it. And with me in the room, they had proven it, that if we just get his liquids down, he can breathe more. He can walk all the way through an airport. He could do all the things that he was complaining that he couldn't do. And he could play shows. And he had stepped off stage these couple of times and he said, you know, he was like, so you're leaving and all that. I said, look, if you're not going to try, if you're not going to make an effort, then there isn't really anything for me to do than schedule things for you. And Eddie's already doing that. You know, like there are logistics people here that can just handle the day to day. They don't need to pay me a nice salary for me to just be a useless you know, dolt out here. And he goes, I am trying. And I was like, that's bullshit. Dude. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, look at you right now. There's two half drunk glasses of milk. You've got a, a vodka and, and orange juice sitting beside you. All of them are since this morning. Cause I cleaned up the glasses last night before I went to bed and you went to bed. And he was like, I'm not supposed to drink now. You know, he always pushed everything down to the, yeah. The most yeah. extreme measure, right? And 
And I said, all you got to do is control it. I said, we've been through this a hundred fucking times. You listen to the doctors the same as I did. Everybody just wants you to go to the hospital so they can drain the stuff off you safely, get your kidneys to not be upset about it. You know, if you try to do that on your own, they can shut down. But at the hospital, they can take care of you and make sure that doesn't happen. So we're looking at one night in the hospital and then your monitor guy gets to have a job. You get to have a job. You get to be on stage. You get to look at smiling fans. We all get to stay out here and do the job we love doing. So, I mean, it's a win-win for everybody. And you're the one who has to suffer. I get it. That was kind of like the whole argument. And we went back and forth at each other a little bit. But it ended up getting him to the hospital. We went to the hospital and he stayed overnight in Austin. And they, they helped him. And he hated every minute of it. Yeah. I slept in the room on one of those little chair things and mm-hmm. his hospital bed was there and he watched stupid TV. He did the same fucking thing he does every night anyway. It just <laughs> he was happened. able to get, get the help he needed. Right. right. And, and the nurse came in every once in a while and annoyed the shit out of him. So that was how was he? But um, we did the rest of the tour. How was he with, with fans? I mean, obviously you said you had, <laughs> he had these fans that would bring him shit and this and that. Would, did he meet? Uh, I mean, I know I've heard, I've never heard anybody say anything. Oh, I met Lemmy and he was, you know, like a total asshole or anything like that. I mean, did yeah. you see a lot of interacting okay. or did he limit Okay, that? my job a lot of the nights, especially in Europe, was to get Lemmy from the dressing room down to the bus. When we would make that trip, I would be carrying a whole lot of shit, um, all the stuff he wanted to take from the dressing room, a cooler with that in it, all the alcohol in another bag, a backpack, and a side satchel that had everything in it. You know, so I'm loaded down. Probably have a hat or a coat or two for him and a cane, whatever. We get to the bus finally. He's winded. Depending on how many people cheered from a fence not far away or a barricade, um, I, the least amount of people I ever saw him do this for was like two or three. And sometimes it was for 50 or a hundred and they would all be holding up their stuff. And he would be like, give me five minutes, go get everything you can carry and bring it back. So I would do that. I would go over and I'd be like, remember what you had. I'm not going to, I'm going to come back here with a pile of shit. You guys are all, I was the asshole, but I was paid to be the asshole sometimes. You know I mean? I, I wasn't an asshole to the fans, but I was, I was the guy in between and I had to say no a lot. And I would go with this big stack of shit and I would go set it in front of Lemmy and he'd go through every piece. Sometimes it was in the cover. He said, I'd never sign this CD because they don't like that. They want it on the, the insert or whatever it was. So that whole thing happened nightly. And anytime we were coming out of a hotel, if we were doing something and we didn't have a tight schedule, he would stop and he would talk. And he loved I won't say that he loved to be there for the fans as much as he hated anybody who didn't other artist wise. He hated that about them. And then he, he also defended the fans of anyone talked ill about them by saying stuff like, well, there's a bunch of fucking assholes at the front. You're not going to want to go that way. He'd go, why? You know, and he would get in their face a little bit verbally and say, what are you talking about? You know, and, and that's cool because he, he defended his fans and he loved them. That concludes this special Motorhead Ace of Spades episode of the Into the Void music podcast. Into the Void is hosted by Lord Gates, Wild Bill, J-Man, and Dave Manick, and is produced by Dave Manick in conjunction with Manic Panic Media. 
If you like Inner Hawaii, don't forget to tell your friends about this podcast. Follow the podcast on Facebook at Into the Void or email the show at Into the Void Music Pod at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all next time. Into the Void. Thank you.